Amen. Thank you, Jem and Adrian, and welcome to our uh, online service today. So glad to have you here with us. If you haven't already, turn with me to James chapter 1, the passage of Scripture that our sister Jem just uh, read to us. You know, yesterday I got my, my free labor working crew, my four sons, and, and my wife actually was, uh, was involved in weeding our backyard. Now, Lindsay and I, uh, six or seven years ago, we, we bought this fixer upper house and the the backyard is beautiful yet there is honestly there is some sort of botanical mystery taking place in our backyard. I'm not just talking about dandelions. I'm not just talking about the common weeds that you would find in an everyday lawn. There there are so many different things growing where grass should be growing in our backyard. Now, We've been trying to work with our boys to say, if you, if you want to get rid of a weed, you can't just pick the leaves up off the top. You need to get down to the root. And I've got to admit, sometimes when I'm discouraged with all of the weeds in the backyard, I just set my lawnmower on a, the lowest setting possible and just try to mow over the whole thing. I just try to deal with the surface. But if you want to truly get rid of weeds, you got to get to the root. And that got me thinking about today's message, which is continuing in our series about wisdom. James taught us last week about wisdom about trials, and this week it's wisdom about temptation. Wisdom about temptation. That's the title for today's message. And if we're going to deal with temptation, we can't simply deal with it on the surface. We have to get underneath. We can't just be be dealing with sin up on top. We need to be looking at the temptation and really the desires that lie beneath the surface. And what we're going to find today is is really how interconnected the trials that we face in life, how interconnected they are with the temptations that we face. In fact, in the New Testament, trial and temptation, it's the same Greek word. And what we're going to find today is that every trial that we face brings us to a crossroads, a crossroads where we need to decide between testing and temptation, a crossroads where we follow the path of sin or the path of steadfastness, a crossroads that based on the decision will either lead us to life or to death. Every trial brings us to a crossroads of testing or temptation, steadfastness or sin, life or death. So as we come to this crossroads, as all of us face various trials in our lives, today we're going to see three places where we need to look if we are going to avoid falling into the trap of temptation now, a gem read to us our passage today, but what I'd like to do is to back up a little bit for us to get the context. So I'm going to read to you starting at James chapter 1, verse 2, before we dive into our text. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith 
with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not, be, must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. And then we pick it up in verse 9. It says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Now, when, when we read that, when we jump between verse 8 and verse 9, it seems like James is just changing topics. He had been talking about trials. He had ta been talking about making sure that you're not being double-minded and seeking God for wisdom. And now he's talking about being rich or being poor. It seems like he's just being random. It seems like he's just changing topics. But loved ones, he's not. You see, he said back in verse 2 that we face various trials. And what James is doing here is he is using the, the concept of wealth, the idea of finances, of being rich or being poor. He's using this as a case study for the contrasting trials that we face in our lives. He said trials are various. He could have used any example. There's different trials that men face versus women, that old face versus young, that there's a, a number of different ways that James could have used an example here, but he focuses in on the case study of being rich and being poor. There are some trials that poor people face that rich people don't. There are other trials that rich people face that poor people don't. And what James is encouraging the church to do here with this illustration, and it applies in all areas of life, is that when we come up against a trial, the first place where we need to look is this. Jot this down if you're taking notes today. The first point is this, to look beyond our current circumstances. Look beyond our current circumstances. Let's look again at verse 9. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the, rich mother, and the rich in his humiliation. Now, does the lowly brother, is the person who is poor, are they being exalted currently? Does culture celebrate poverty? Do, do, do poor people get invited to, to be leaders and influencers in our world? No, they don't. So when he's talking about exaltation, he's not talking about now. And are rich people experiencing humiliation as he describes right, right here in this passage? No, the rich people are the influencers. They are the people that are honored and celebrated in our culture. So he's not talking about right now. He's talking about the future exaltation, the future humiliation. Then he goes on to say, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. There's this idea, this comparison with grass and with flowers that would fade away. I wish the weeds in my backyard would fade away, but they won't. But the illustration here is this, this sense of our current circumstances, our current situation, whether it be prosperity or whether it be poverty, is not permanent. Material prosperity is not permanent. Material poverty is not permanent. There is a change that is coming. The grass may be growing now, but there is a scorching heat that is going to come, and the grass and the flower is going to fade and is going to wither. James is challenging his readers to think with an eternal perspective. Remember how I mentioned last week that James is staying really close to the Sermon on the Mount. 
He's, he's, this, this book here is almost a, a sermon summarizing so many teachings of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. Remember what Jesus had to say about money. Look at this on the screen in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, for neither where, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Then Jesus said in verse 24, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. So James here is picking up on the illustration of his older half-brother. Jesus gave the illustration of moth and rust and thieves, and then James just adds another illustration. He actually grabs it from Isaiah chapter 40 and compares wealth to grass and flowers that fade. He tells them to have an eternal perspective. Remember, Jesus said, you cannot serve God and money. That's in the Sermon on the Mount. You cannot serve two masters. What is someone who, who, sorry, who is the person that serves two masters? They are double-minded. What did James just warn about in verse 8? The double-minded person who isn't trusting in the Lord in the midst of their trials. If the person is trusting in their finances, they are a double-minded person. You see the connection here? See, this isn't some random topic that James just decided to talk about. No, he's following through. He's staying close to the Sermon on the Mount. He's staying on track with his theme of trials. And he says, whether you're poor or whether you're rich, you need to make sure that you are thinking with an eternal perspective. You see, many people who are participating in this service right now Financial hardship will be the biggest challenge and trial that you face in your life. Financial hardship will be the biggest challenge and trial that you will ever face in your entire life. For others of us, financial prosperity will be the biggest trial and hardship that you face in your life. You think, well, how, how is that even possible? How, how could it be that, that financial prosperity could present a trial? Listen, there are trials and temptations that come at us, whether we are rich or whether we are poor. This gets summed up beautifully in the book of Proverbs. Look with me at Proverbs chapter 30, verse 8 and 9. It says, give me neither poverty nor riches, Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Lest I become double-minded, lest I think that I, I, I can serve money and I don't have to worry about serving the Lord, or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. You see, there are temptations that come when we have a lot of money, and there are temptations that come when we feel like we don't have enough. Both are a trial that can end up becoming a temptation in our lives if we aren't careful. Now, what about this word boasting that he uses in verse 9, that poor people are supposed to boast in their exaltation, and that rich people, rich Christians, are supposed to boast in their humiliation? 
You see, this is really zeroing in on what Mary sang about in the Magnificat, where she says several times that the lowly have been exalted and the wealthy or the powerful have been humbled or, or humiliated, that the gospel levels things out. We live in a world where the rich are up here, the successful are up here, and they're considered important, and the poor are way down here, and they're nothing and meaningless. And yet the gospel brings those two groups and puts them on a level playing field. So the poor can rejoice in the fact that they have been exalted, that they are, in fact, equal with those who think that they're superior somehow because they're more wealthy. And the wealthy Christian who has had their eyes open to the gospel no longer thinks that they are better than other people because of their wealth. They have been humbled. They boast in their humiliation, and they know that all people are equal and created in the image of God, and that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all, spiritually speaking, are impoverished. But Christ is the treasure, and he became poor to make us rich spiritually, and that, loved ones, changes everything. So James here says, boast but it's really not about the poor person boasting in their exaltation in, in, in the future. It's really not the, the wealthy person boasting in the humiliation. What are they truly boasting in? They're boasting in Christ. The poor person says, I may not have much right now in terms of wealth and financial stability and prosperity. I may not have much material wealth, but in Christ, I have the greatest treasure. And the wealthy person is supposed to say, you know what, God has provided for whatever reason, he's provided me with such abundance in terms of material wealth, but all of that I count as loss because I treasure Christ. And the wealth that I have, I don't hold it with a closed hand. I hold it with an open hand. And I give freely because I know that God has given to me. And the poor person who feels like their hands are empty isn't reaching and grasping for wealth, but is holding on to and treasuring Jesus Christ. So that's the case study that James chooses to use to illustrate that that we all struggle with various trials. That's what he said in verse two. To warn us about the double-mindedness that he warned against in verse eight. You see, trials can lead us into triumph when we remain steadfast, or trials can lead us into temptation and tragedy when we give in to sin. Look with me at verse 12. James here says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Again, James is focusing on the Sermon on the Mount. He begins this sentence with the statement, blessed is. Does that sound familiar? That's coming right from the Sermon on the Mount, right from the Beatitudes, where Jesus said all, pronounced all of these blessings. And James says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, the trials that come with being rich or the trials that come from being poor, the various trials that we face, there is a blessing when we remain steadfast. He's restating the, the, the point that he's been trying to make again and again, and then he adds this, he adds this extra incentive. 
Up until now, he said, you gotta remain steadfast because if you remain steadfast, then you will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You will become mature. But he adds something on top of maturity, another benefit to steadfastness. And it comes from looking beyond our current circumstances. Let's look at verse 12 in its entirety. It says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. James challenges us to look beyond the maturity that he mentioned earlier on in chapter 1, to look beyond maturity and to look to eternity and to look at receiving that crown of life that God will give to us when he says, well done, good and faithful servant, when we remain steadfast. Let's review what steadfast uh, means. Let's look at this slide uh, on the screen here. Uh, it, the Greek word is hypomene. Hypo means under, mone means remain. And the English word steadfast, stead means place, fast means to secure, staying in place. Don't run from the trial. Don't try to find another way around the trial. Stay on track. Stand in place. Be steadfast. That's where the blessing comes. That's what God wants to do in our lives. We gotta stay steadfast in trials because every trial, loved ones, is a crossroads between testing or temptation, between steadfastness and sin, between life and death. And the, the first place we gotta look is beyond our, current second, our, beyond our current circumstances. The second place where we need to look is behind our struggle with temptation. We gotta look behind our struggle with temptation. We gotta get down to the root. We can't deal with sin on a surface level. You can't just pick the leaves off the top. You can't just try to mow it over as low as you can. It'll keep growing. It'll keep multiplying. You have to get down to the root. So now James in verse 15, sorry, verse 13 says this. He says, let no one when he is tempted say, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Now, that word tempted that James is using in verse 13, that's the same word that's being translated as trial. He just, he just used the exact same word in verse 12. He used the same word back in verse two. The word for trial and temptation in Greek is the same word. The difference, the way to tell the difference is context. A trial can be a trial. God brings trials into our lives to test our faith. Temptation is a whole other story. Temptation is, is not simply a test, but it's trying to lure someone into sin. And James is trying to be really clear here. As he's emphasizing the sovereignty of God and how he uses trials, he uses difficulties in our lives. He wants to be clear. He's like, don't mishear me. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I want to be as clear as I can be. Even though I'm emphasizing the sovereignty of God and his desire to use trials to make us steadfast. He says, I know some of you are thinking, well, this is a way for me to get off the hook for my sin. This is a way for me to, to use an excuse to say, just kind of blame it on God. Oh, well, God is going to use my stumbling into sin and my backsliding He's going to use that for my maturity. James says, hold up. Just like Paul does in the book of Romans where he's 
emphasizing we're saved by grace, not by works. We're saved by grace. And then he stops and asks the question in, in verse 6. He says, hold up. What shall we say then? Shall we say, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And then Paul says, absolutely not. That's, that's just what James is doing here. He's been emphasizing the sovereignty of God and the purpose of trials. But he's saying, that doesn't mean that when we're tempted and when we sin, that that's somehow a good thing. That doesn't produce maturity in us. That, pro that produces death. That's why he says, let no one say when he is tempted that he's being tempted by God. He gives some sound theology here. God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. When God puts us through a trial, he always provides a way out. He never puts us through that trial so that expecting us or wanting us or intending for us to sin. He puts us through that trial for the testing of our faith so that we would be steadfast in that trial so that he could produce maturity in us. That's God's purpose. Keep reading with me. Look at, at verse 14. It says, but each person, now he's going to say, so don't blame God for temptation. He's, I'm going to unpack what temptation is. Verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So James says, listen, God is not the one responsible when we sin. We are responsible. And as he's clarifying that God's not responsible, he's, he's really clarifying a lot of the excuses we tend to make about sin. We tend to say, well, society, you know, influenced me in the wrong direction. My, my upbringing, it was, it was my parents' fault, or, or it was, it was, uh, it was the, the stressful circumstances that I find myself in we all, it's, it's genetics, you know, the, the, we often have all of these excuses. James here hits the target right on the bullseye. He says, here's the problem with temptation. Here's where temptation comes from. It's not culture or your parents. It's not genetics. It's not stress. The reason why you sin is because of your desire. Because of the, the, the desires that live inside of us. Now, for everyone who is a new creation in Christ, we have been given a new identity and a new heart, and, and the very core of who we are wants to obey. The New Testament teaches that clearly, but the New Testament also teaches us that remaining inside of us, there is something that James calls it desires. Paul calls it the flesh or the sinful nature. It's called the old man in other places in the New Testament. There is something inside of us that still wants to sin. Even though our new heart and our new identity and the fact that we are a new creation wants to follow God and be steadfast in the midst of trials, there is something inside of us, indwelling sin, residual fleshliness and worldliness that wants to lure us into temptation when we face trials. If we were to try to map out what James 1 is trying to teach, it would probably look something like, like this. So you're going along your life and you face a trial. So I've pictured that like a wall. That's a wall that we need to either trust God for strength to climb over or a wall that we have to trust that God is going to break down for us. That is the trial that we are facing. If we endure that trial, we go down the path of testing. 
And as we learned in verses two and, and, and three and four in verse 12, testing leads to steadfastness, which produces maturity. And the ultimate result, James 1.12, is the crown of life. That's the, that's the way we're supposed to go. But James here is outlining there's an alternative route that we need to avoid. That when we come up against a wall, when we come up against a trial, rather than trusting God for strength to climb over that wall or trusting that God will break that wall down for us, we take the alternative route, the detour of temptation. We are lured and enticed, verse 14 says, by our desire that leads to sin and then it leads to death. That's right there in verse 14 and verse 15. James is warning us, don't go down that path. Don't let your trials turn into a temptation. You're coming to a crossroads every time you face a trial. Are you gonna remain steadfast? Or are you going to slip and slide down the path of sin and death? We gotta look behind what is happening. We gotta trust. Remember, loved ones, it starts with our desire. Think back to the original temptation. Think back to Adam and Eve in the garden. What was it that lured Eve towards the fruit? Look with me at Genesis chapter three, verse six. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. Let's just stop there for a second. Good for food and delight for the eyes. Now, some people think, well, that was the root of the temptation. Loved ones, if you look over at Genesis chapter two, verse nine, you will see that every tree in the garden was a delight to the eyes. And every tree of the garden was good for food. God is a generous God. He gives without reproach. He's the giving God. He had already given Adam and Eve a whole garden full of trees that were good for food and that were beautiful for the eyes. Now let's go back to Genesis chapter three, verse six. It says the tree, this is what pushed Eve over the edge. The tree was to be desired to make one wise. It was that desire, and this is where sin comes from. This is where temptation comes from. We think that God is somehow holding out on us. Sure, he provided trees that are pleasing to the eye. Sure, he provided trees that are good for food, but the serpent slithered in and said, you know, God doesn't want you to be like him. Even though he created you in his image, and gave you authority to have dominion over the whole planet to rule as kings and queens under his authority, Satan implants the lie to say, you know what, God doesn't want you to be like him. He wants to prevent you from being wise. And that desire to be in charge, that desire to live and make their own rules and establish their own ways of that desire is what pushed Eve over the edge. That's where temptation comes from. It comes from our desire. You see, and what James is doing here is so helpful because so often we find ourselves on the other side of sin where it's already happened. And sometimes we, we end up over here and we wonder, how did I ever get here? What took place? 
Who, you look yourself in the mirror, you don't even recognize yourself. You look at the decisions that you've made and you look at the commitments that you had made previously and you wonder, how on earth am I here? And sometimes, loved ones, it feels like it happens so quickly. And what James does here is just like, a, just like an analyst or a color commentary on a, in a hockey game or a basketball game. James is going to give a slow motion, instant replay to help us look behind what causes us to sin. You see, he slows it down. He says it starts with our desire, and our desire lures us and entices us to sin. And then sin gives birth to death. And so, loved ones, here, if we were to track it, uh, again, on a chart here, we would have, we face a trial, and then rather than continuing on the path of steadfastness, we are lured and enticed. Those are hunting and fishing terms where there's a sense of deception, bait and switch. We're lured by our desire. That desire gives birth to sin, and sin gives birth to death. That's what verse 14 and 15. Notice how, how sin multiplies. Desire multiplies into, it reproduces we often, we often give in to sin thinking it will just be this once. And we think, well, I'll just keep it under control. And then like a weed in the backyard or like a, like a virus in a body, it just continues to grow and to multiply and completely take over. And that's what James is warning us about. He slows down the process so that we can identify the steps along the way. And he intentionally uses this, this birthing analogy twice. Desire gives birth to sin, and sin gives birth to death. Sin takes on a life of its own in us. And we must, loved ones, put it to death. It's continually reproducing. And remember, even though we face all of these temptations, even though these desires inside of us want to take us off the path of steadfastness and put us on the, the path of sin, remember what we're promised in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. It says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. He'll provide a way to break down that wall. He'll provide strength for you to climb over that wall. He doesn't want you to change course. He will always provide a way out. So loved ones, every time we face a trial, we come to a crossroads, a crossroads of testing and temptation, a crossroads of choosing between steadfastness and sin, a crossroads that will ultimately lead us to life or to death. Did you notice how verse 15 relates to verse 12? Look at, verse, look at how verse 15 ends. When it is fully grown, brings forth death. Look at how verse 12 ends. It says, he will, he will, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Verse 12 ends with life. Verse 15 ends with death. What are, your, what are you going to choose? You stand at a crossroads. 
James chapter 1, verses 2 to 5 uses the word teleos. That's translated perfect. That's where we get the idea of becoming more mature. So either we become mature or sin becomes mature. Because if you look in verse 15, when it says fully grown, that's the word teleos. So either we are becoming mature and more Christ-like or sin is becoming mature in us. What do we want to have growing in our lives? Christ-likeness or sin? Every time we face a trial, we come to that crossroad. So, loved ones, we've got to look beyond our current circumstances. We've got to look behind our struggle with temptation to find out what is actually at the root. The root are the desires inside of us. And then lastly, loved ones, we've got to look up. We've got to look up to our Father of lights. We've got to look up to our Father of lights. Look with me at verse 16. It says, do not be deceived. Don't be deceived by sin. Don't be deceived into thinking that somehow your sin is going to produce maturity. It's not going to mature you to make you more like Christ. It's going to mature sin inside of you. He says, don't be deceived. And then he says, my beloved brothers. When, when brothers is used in the New Testament, he's not simply speaking to, to the men. He's also speaking to, to the women. It's, that's just a, a general term, like family members. Don't be deceived. The church is a family. Don't be deceived. He says, my beloved. Remember, these are the Jewish Christians that were scattered out of Jerusalem. James used to be their senior pastor. He used to teach them on a regular basis in the temple and from home to home in Acts 2. But Acts 7 and 8 happened, and Stephen was martyred, and the church was scattered, and James is longing for these people. He doesn't want them to be deceived and falling into sin. So he says, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. And so, loved ones, I'm speaking to you as one of your pastors, as one of the elders here at Hope Church, and we've all been scattered because of COVID-19 restrictions, and I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to encourage you and exhort you. I'm pleading with you. I know we're all facing trials right now. Don't be deceived. Stay on course. Remain steadfast, my beloved brothers and sisters. He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Look up to our Father. He says, brothers and sisters. What makes us brothers and sisters? We are brothers and sisters because we have a Father. Look up when we are tempted when we face trials, we are to look up to our Father of lights. And then it says that he gives every good and perfect gift. Remember, this is what James was trying to get across in verse 5. Look back at verse, at verse 5. He says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously. God is a good giver, and he gives good and perfect gifts. That word perfect, again, is teleos. He keeps using that word, that word of maturity and completion, fully developed, that when God gives a gift, there's nothing lacking in the gift. He gives us everything that we need. And uh, the desires inside of us try to convince us, try to deceive us into thinking, no, there's got to be something more. My life is incomplete unless I have this, unless I have that, unless I accomplish this. 
James says, don't be deceived. God is generous. He is a giver. And he has given every good and every perfect and complete gift. Everything that we need has been given to us in Christ. And he calls God the Father of lights, the one who spoke the sun and the moon and the stars into existence. And he says that, that he is the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So God made, he made the lights, he made the sun and the moon and the stars, but based on clouds, based on how the earth is orbiting around the sun, how the earth is rotating, the sun appears to move around in the sky. The moon appears to change shape and, and move around in the sky. Even the constellations shift over, over time. There seems to be a shifting, a changing. But with God, the true Father of lights, the source of all light, in the book of Revelation, there is no sun or moon or stars. God is the light. There's no shadow. There's no cloud coverage. There's no, God doesn't move around. God doesn't change shape. There's no variation. There's no shadow due to change. God doesn't change. Loved ones, the truth is what James is communicating here is God is steadfast. And so when we face trials, how, we, how are we supposed to be? We're supposed to be steadfast. We're supposed to stay the same. We're supposed to stay in one place. And James is reminding us that we can be steadfast because we serve a father who is steadfast, who is always the same, and who we can always count on and rely on when we come up against those trials so that we ourselves can trust that he'll give us the strength to climb over that wall or he miraculously will break that wall down. God gives good and perfect gifts. Loved ones, temptation comes when we think God is holding out on us. That's what the serpent did to Adam and Eve. That's what he's trying to do to us. That's what the desires inside of us are always trying to lure us and entice us away into thinking that God is somehow not generous, but every good and every perfect gift comes from him. And that never changes. It's not that he gives good and perfect gifts to you, but he doesn't give good and perfect gifts to you. Or he, gives, he might have given good and perfect gifts to you last year or last week, but now, not so much. No, he's the same God, yesterday, today, and forever. There's no shadow. There's no variation. There's no change in him. He's a giver. He's a generous God. James has been trying to make that clear all the way from verse 5 down now into verse 16, and then he points to the greatest gift that God has given. Look at verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. James had been using all of this birth imagery to talk about sin in verse 14 and 15, that desire gives birth to sin, and then sin brings forth, which is the same, same idea, giving birth to death. Now James uses that same word for giving birth. He says he has, he has given birth to us. New birth. Like Jesus said, look at this verse on the screen. Jesus said in John 3, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, as he was talking to Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23 says, You have been born again not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. 
It's interesting, if you study 1 Peter, he also quotes Isaiah 40, which James quoted earlier about the grass withering and the flowers fading, pointing people to that eternal perspective. We have been born again by the living word, the living and abiding word. You see, God is a generous God, and the greatest gift that he's given us is new life in Christ, being born again, forgiven for our sins, forgiven for what our desires do, leading to sin, ultimately leading to death, so that we will not suffer death, but be given the gift of eternal life. Notice three things about this new birth that James wants us to understand. The first one, look at verse 18, it says, of his own will. God chose to save us. We did not choose to follow God. We might sing, I've decided to follow Jesus, and in one sense that is true, but God has chosen us. Think about your own birth. You weren't exactly consciously involved. You didn't choose your parents. You didn't choose where you were born. You didn't choose what day you were born. You didn't, no, you had very, very little influence on the decision. And our decision to follow Jesus is the same way. When, when we are given new spiritual life, when someone is born again, it is of God's will. He sovereignly chooses. Also notice how we are born again. It says he has brought us forth by the word of truth. So it happened according to his will, and it happens by his word, the word of truth. Jesus, John 1 verse 1, he is the word. And the message of his death and burial and resurrection on our behalf, that is the word of truth. It's the gospel. That's why here at Hope we're continually preaching and teaching the gospel. Because that is how lives are changed. That is how people are saved. So it happens according to his will. It happens by the word of truth. And then notice at the end of verse 18, it says that, here's the reason, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. First fruits of his creatures. First fruits is an Old Testament concept related to tithing. You can read about it in the book of Leviticus that, that whenever you got an income or whenever you harvested your crops, you took 10% of that. That was called the first fruits. And that, that was a, a donation that went to the, to the priesthood, to the temple, to the ongoing worship and praise of the God who created everything. The idea was that this 10% was the first fruits. It was the best, it was the first, and it belonged to God. It was God's portion. And then James here, he looks at us, he looks at his brothers and sisters who are scattered all around, and he says, Christians, you are like the tithe. You are like the first fruits of all the people on the planet, all the image bearers that are scattered all around. He says, you belong to God. You are set apart for the worship and the praise and the honor of God. You are the first fruits. That we are a people that are set apart for God's glory, God's worship, and God's purposes. And so loved ones, that's what we need to do when we come up against a trial, when we face this wall, 
We need to remind ourselves that the reason why I exist, I have been set apart. I am part of the first fruits, born again by the word of truth, born again by the will of the Father, so that in this trial, it's not really about me, that I belong to God, that I'm first fruits. I belong to him. I'm devoted to him so that in this trial, I'm going I'm to go through this trial, not in the way of temptation, but in the way of worship in the way of displaying God's greatness and his glory because I belong to him, purchased by the blood of his son, the word of life. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Our Heavenly Father, I know that we are all facing trials of various times based on our temperament, based on our upbringing, based on our own personality or sensitivities that as we're all facing various trials, even when two people face the same trial, we all face unique temptations. We all have distinct and unique desires inside of us. We all have unique struggles, fears, insecurities, lusts, longings. And so, Lord, I, I pray that whatever we come up against, whatever we are up against right now, I pray this for my own soul. I pray this for my beloved brothers and sisters who are listening right now, God. God, I pray that we would, we would look beyond what we're up against and have a view towards eternity, that we would look deep down to the roots of where temptation may be coming from, Lord, but ultimately that we would look up to you, our Father of lights, and thank you that when we look up to you, Lord, that we can trust that you never change. And God, help us to live for your glory and for your purposes as those who have been set apart, as those who are your first fruits. Lord, we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.